Good morning, everybody. We're going to uh, continue our morning through worship in prayer and then follow that with the proclaiming of God's Word. Um, if you're not familiar, we start most mornings uh, praying for another church in our community and then praying for an unreached people group. And then um, recently, we've also been praying for the pastor search process as well. Um, so if you would, please join me in prayer this morning. <clears throat> Father, we come before you this morning um, in all sorts of different states, people tired and exhausted after a long week, um, people excited about a new week. Um, Lord, we come to you as sinners that are being made new through your work. Lord, we just thank you that we have the ability to come before you, and thank you for the work that you continue to do in and through this body. Lord, too, this morning we want to lift up another local church community in our community, um, Shady Grove Baptist Church. God, as they are meeting this morning, ask that you would fill them with your truth and your spirit, that you would speak through uh, Pastor Stephen Ford um, just to faithfully proclaim your word to them, to build them up, and to edify that body. Lord, too, strengthen him in his time throughout the week, um, his studies. Um, Lord, we ask that you would be blessing that study to be fruitful um, and just to be seen throughout his work in the church. And also ask that you would just bless his uh, marriage and his family, um, his wife, Missy, Lord, just to build them up to be um, just a strong presence for you in this community. Lord, we ask that um, Shady Grove Baptist Church and Cross Point Fellowship and the multitude of other churches in this community would um, just kill any spirit of competition between ourselves, Lord, but to come together and to truly enjoy you and to work together to glorify you in this community. Lord, too, we want to lift up an unreached people group, the Zivan Bedouin people in Algeria. God, you know each and every one of the 20,000 people. 20,000 people who are 100% Muslim. No known believers. But Lord, you know each and every one of them. You know the strength and the power that Islam has in that community and among those people. But Lord, you are more powerful. We ask that your light would shine in and among those people that you would give them dreams and visions and access to your word, that radios and uh, television programs would reach um, into their areas where they don't have access to um, other believers. And Lord, too, we ask that you would raise up workers and send them to work among these people. And just that as we come into... February next year, that we could celebrate that that 100% has uh, gone down. Lord, we know you are faithful, and we just ask that you would be at work in those people. Lord, too, we just want to continue to pray for the pastor search process. This morning, um, in particular, we just want to pray that you would be at work and that you would just shepherd transition process that you would be preparing our church, um, our body, our leadership to receive a new lead teaching pastor, that we would not 
be caught off by things that change, caught off guard by things that change, but we would accept those and enjoy those and see you at work in those. Lord, may, may you just uh, guide our body through transition. Lord, too, we ask for the, the church that our new pastor will be coming from, that you would provide um, wisdom and discernment as they transition, um, that there would be a solid shepherding process through that, and that you would take care of each and every believer in that church, and that you would help them through that transition. And Lord, too, finally, just praying for um, uh, our new pastor's family um, as they transition, um, that you would give them peace and comfort as many new things happen, that you would work out logistics whenever those things do happen, just to make it possible. Lord, too, I just want to lift up this morning. God, ease anxieties as I come into this after a crazy week. Um, just speak clearly through me, and may the people of this body hear the word that you have for them this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know me, I recognize pretty much all of you, but I've also realized that I'm good at just walking in as an awkward engineer type personality and not actually introducing myself. Um, so my name is uh, Jason Brown. I am not normally up here. Um, I work down the road as an engineer during the day. Um, but this morning, we're going to continue our time in the book of First John. Primarily, we're going to be looking at um, verses 3 through 11, but for context, we're going to back up and start at the beginning of chapter 2. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> First John, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. I've realized that um, the book of 1 John is dense and it's also repetitive. Um, 
And depending on your learning style, it might give you, uh, it may be beneficial to you to have some idea of where we're going this morning. Um, give you some idea. We're going to be looking at three statements that John makes throughout this passage, um, similar to the three statements at the end of chapter 1. But we'll look at verses 3 through 5 as John introduces some really big, heavy topics, talking about assurance of salvation, sanctification, and how we work in that. And then we'll be looking at verses 6 through 8, about how we abide in this old and new covenant and what that has to do with that, or new commandment. Um, And then we'll wrap it up as John narrows in from these big topics down to the very simple application in verses 9 through 11 of love. So we see here at the beginning of chapter 2, John kind of changes tone from where he was in chapter 1. He kind of takes on more the tone of a concerned pastor, addressing pastoral matters among this congregation. You see, he starts out by addressing their concern and their um, distresses over ongoing sin. He's also addressing the distresses caused by these deceivers who left that congregation after proclaiming false teaching. Now, this section has these three statements of whoever says, and they're very similar to the if we say statements, three of which were in at the end of chapter one. And there's a difference here, and we'll look at that in just a second, but the three statements in chapter one are false claims that you can have fellowship without light, that we have no sin, and that we have not sinned. But the difference here in chapter two is that believers can rightly say these statements. I know him, I abide in him, and I am in the light. Chapter 1, verse 6, the first if statement, says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. Chapter 2, verse 4, says, Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, these sound very similar, but there's a small difference, and a lot of that comes to who he's speaking to. Before, John is speaking to those who left. John says that they had a lifestyle of darkness. John's still saying that disobedience is serious, that God is not in our sin, but he's being made perfect when we keep his word. This difference we see in chapter 2, verse 6 where John says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This walk, in verse 6, is a godly walk, walk, as Jesus walked. In comparison to chapter 1, verse 6, where he says that they were walking in darkness. And we see that as John uh, refutes this idea of those walking in darkness in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, if we walk in light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and with the blood of Jesus, his son, who cleanses us from all sin. See, John, in chapter 1, is saying to those who are walking in darkness, he's reminding them, you need the cleansing blood of Jesus. You need that fellowship with the Father that is deeply connected with the fellowship of one another. You're walking in darkness, but this is what you need. Um, So, then what John is now doing is he's speaking to those who are walking in the light. 
who are in that fellowship together that before was the fellowship that had been disrupted. So that's a quick intro. This is a reminder of what the difference is between the if statements and the whoever says statements. <clears throat> Last week we saw um, in chapter one, or in chapter two, verses one and two, John speaking to those who walk in the light. <clears throat> he he changed his tone. Sorry, lost my place there. <laughs> um, last week. He's speaking to those and saying that if you sin, all hope is not lost because we have an advocate and a propitiation in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So this brings up the question then of how do we know that we have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as our advocate in propitiation? How do we know? See, knowledge was something that was a big deal back then. It's likely that these deceivers who caused the disruption in this body and left were kind of early forms of the Gnostics who valued knowledge and claimed to have special knowledge and put knowledge up on a pedestal, almost idolizing knowledge. Now, I've had the opportunity in my life to know some very, very knowledgeable people. I went to school for engineering at a school that's been around since 1870, and in the student center, they have this small plaque with the name of every student in the entire history of the school who got a 4.0 GPA. Now, I was certainly not one of them, but I knew a few of them. They made even the most challenging assignments look like they were playing tic-tac-toe on the back of a cereal box. I mean, these are the people who knew everything, especially when it was something they were passionate about. And during my five years at school, <laughs> I got to the point where I could kind of tell some people, I could tell what they were studying based on how their knowledge played out. And one of the most interesting groups that you could just tell talking to them were those who were studying aerospace engineering. Now, this group just continues to confuse me in a few ways. But I can also say this because that's what I studied, and I had a front row seat to some of their peculiarities. Some of you may also say that I did not escape without picking up some of my own. <laughs> I remember one of the first things that Jessica saw when she came over to my apartment uh, before we were even dating, is you walked into my apartment and realized, looking around the room, that the entire ceiling had a bunch of rockets hanging from it. So I definitely have some peculiarities. But there were some of these guys that they were so knowledgeable about airplanes and flight and all that sort of stuff. Like they would just sit around at a table and play with mathematical proofs of aerodynamic theory. That to me was not playing, but, and like they knew all the history of aircraft. They knew every single aircraft model ever built and they could look up in the sky and look at the, the contrails and say, oh, that's a Boeing 737, just by what it looked like. Very knowledgeable. In fact, I had a, a friend, um, he really enjoyed Microsoft Flight Simulator. Like, he would stay up all night playing on this thing. 
But he wasn't the kind of person that would like, you know, fly around like an acrobatic airplane and do a barrel roll through the St. Louis Arch or something like that that most people do. No, no, no. He wanted to really know what real flight was like. So he would sit there for hours through the night on a simulation of a transatlantic commercial flight. We'd walk in at 2 in the morning and be like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm flying to uh, Europe. Why? You look at the screen and you just see windows with water. (laughs) But he wanted to know what that was like. I knew people that knew all the names of every test pilot during those Chuck Yeager days when they were trying to break the sound barrier. These guys knew everything. I remember one class where the average test grade was in the low 20% range. But there were these two guys who still managed to get 100%. And they were done early. And keep in mind, their 100% also went into that class average. I was definitely more at the average. These are the kind of people who didn't need a formula sheet during the final because they knew it. They really knew the right stuff about flying. And yes, that is an inside joke about aviation. Um, But as strange as as some of those people were, on multiple occasions, they did something that just continues to this day to confuse me. As they came to the end of their time in their aerospace engineering degree, seniors, they'd been through senior design, where like the aircraft design book was about this thick, and they could recite it verbatim. They knew the book. They knew how to build an airplane. They knew everything about flight. And then they were ready to go to a job interview, a job where they would then apply their knowledge. But on multiple occasions, when they would go to their job interview and they would have to fly to an out-of-state job interview, This was the very first time they had ever flown. (laughs) I don't get it. They knew all about flight, but they didn't have any experiential knowledge of flight. They knew the formulas, but they didn't know the feelings of acceleration on takeoff. They didn't know the emotions of a very turbulent flight or the adrenaline of experiencing flight in general or the beauty of looking out the window at 30 or 40,000 feet and seeing the earth below. They would say that they loved flight, but their intellect, their knowledge, never moved them to actually fly. So you really have to wonder, did they really love flight? See, John's writing to a context where there's a difference in a disconnect between head knowledge and experiential knowledge. Now, he's not saying this to the extreme where we should think that our salvation is based on these experiences. Our salvation is only through our sovereign Lord and Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as we looked at last week. He is our propitiation, atoning sacrifice, who cleanses and satisfies But remember, in this church context, there are these deceivers who had overemphasized knowledge. 
and followed their intellect into these false beliefs and a walk of darkness. In our passage, verse 3 says that, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. We know that we have come to know Christ as our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, and our ongoing and interceding advocate, because we know him as that in our experiences. I think one of the best examples of this experiential knowledge in the Bible comes from the story of Job. Job was an ancient man of immense prosperity. It says that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Like, start your own space company rich, but with livestock. And he had a family, he had 10 kids and a wife, so maybe not today's typical rich person. But it also says that he was blameless and upright, and he would even go and offer sacrifices in case his kids had inadvertently sinned. Short story of what happens is that God allows Satan to test Job, and in that, Job lost everything. He lost his livestock, his servants, his house, his kids, and even his health. And to make it worse, then he had a bunch of lousy friends come along and his wife and tell him to curse God and give up. They said, you deserve this because of whatever you've done. But the Bible tells us that he remained without sin. And then all of a sudden, towards the end of the book, God shows up and he responds to Job. He doesn't ever give Job a real answer as to why this happened, but he takes Job on a tour and shows him his majesty. And in chapter 42, at the end of the book of Job, Job's response to God says, I know that you can do all things and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. Before, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I knew of you, I knew about you, but now I have seen you and I have experienced you in this sovereignty. Your sovereignty in this process was too wonderful for me before, but now I have experienced it. See, God is not theoretical, but he is real, and he can be experienced not just intellectually, but he can be truly experienced as we go through our lives. He's not some puzzle to sit down and play with and figure out. Is it possible to have experiential knowledge of God then? without having to endure Job's suffering, or if we were not an apostle walking physically with Jesus? I hope the answer to that is yes, because I'd not like to be in Job's position, and I'm a little past the date to walk with the apostles. But yes, the answer is yes. We can experience God. As John tells us in our passage, we can experience God where he is at work. Where is God at work? God is at work in working out that which he commanded. The Bible tells us, too, that he is revealing where he is at work to us. In John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, 
Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. God showed Jesus what he was doing. And Jesus perfectly obeyed. And guess what? Jesus expects the same from us. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John introduced this at the beginning of the letter when he was talking about fellowship. He talks about fellowship with the Father and the Son and with each other. And we often think about fellowship as this community, like enjoying each other among it. We talk about a time of fellowship being a time to hang out or enjoy a meal together. But biblical fellowship, this koinonia, has this connotation of joint participation. To have fellowship with the Father and the Son, we must be jointly participating in what the Father and Son are doing. The Son is perfectly participating in what the Father is doing, and at the same time, he is entreating us to join him. In our passage, in verse 3, John tells us that in this fellowship, this is how we know that we have come to know him. How we know we have come to know him. Thank you, John, for odd wording that is confusing. But what John is saying here is that knowing him is not some one-time epiphany, but something that we have both come into in the past and something that still has ongoing implications into our daily life. Knowledge is not stationary. It doesn't make sense to claim to know flight without ever having flown. But the more you do fly, the more you understand and appreciate it. And as believers, we have knowledge of God, and as we experience Him more and more, we know Him more and more. And the more we know Him, the more we are being changed by Him to be more like Him. The more we are made like Him, the more we are able to obey His commandments. And then, the more we obey, the more we experience and know, and the more we are transformed. This is a refining process that we call sanctification. In this process of sanctification, as John tells us in chapter 5 that God's love or in verse 5 that God's love is perfected. And by this we may know we are in him. God's love is perfected. Again, the words that John chooses are a little confusing. It appears here when he's talking about God's love that he may be intentionally vague. Is he talking about love for God, love from God, or love like God? We know from the Bible that God's love is perfect. It's already perfect. But as we cycle through this process of sanctification, we learn more and more of what that looks like, and we have a better picture a more perfect picture of his perfect love. At the same time, as we are made more like Christ, our love for God cannot help but grow as it is being made more and more perfect over time. 
And so too, his perfect love becomes more and more reflected in our love for others. This is the assurance of salvation that John writes about. Jumping ahead to see a picture of this in 1 John chapter 4, stealing some thunder from Neil, sorry. Um, Reading verses 16 through 19, John tells us, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. <clears throat> there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has nothing to do with punishment, or has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So this is the first whoever says statement. And there's a lot happening here of what John is trying to say. So a quick summary. John says, whoever says I know him, but does not have this experiential knowledge gained through and evidenced by walking in obedience to his commands is a liar. He does not have fellowship with the Father and the Son. But those who are walking in the light, those who have that experiential knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, those who are in obedience and in fellowship, in them God's love is made perfect. And by this we know we are in him. Now, from here, John starts narrowing in on his topic. And we see... Now he's saying, what does this lifestyle look like? Well, it looks like abiding in this next section. And then he goes on to say, well, what does that look like? Loving. So verse 6 in our passage from this morning is, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, abiding in him precedes the fruit of love that comes next. And apart from it, we cannot obey. It's not the same thing. But the abiding in him enables this fruit and provides in Jesus this perfect example of how he walked. But it begs the question of how then did Jesus walk? Well, he perfectly obeyed the Father. We saw that earlier. It says the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John also says in chapter 8, verse 55, he says, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. John 15, 10, Jesus says that if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, to abide is this ongoing continuity of this process of sanctification. It's a lifestyle of knowing God and God revealing himself to us. And then that knowledge is moving us to obey his commands 
in obeying his commands, he reveals more of himself to us through that experience. Repeat, repeat, repeat. This lifestyle of abiding is what makes the difference between the deceivers addressed in the first chapter, whose lifestyle reflected sin and abiding in darkness, versus the faithful who remain. Although they do sin, their lifestyles evidence the work of sanctification and abiding in Christ. But if we are to talk, if we are to walk as Christ walked, and he perfectly obeyed, what then do we do with sin? See, abiding has a sense of remaining. Not just ongoing, but truly remaining. And we saw last week that in Jesus, we can remain in him even though we are not sinless because of his ongoing work as our advocate. So then John goes on to talk about this old and new commandment in verses 7 through 8. And it took me a while to really understand what in the world is he saying? What does this have to do with assurance and sanctification and abiding? It's kind of confusing. So we've got to first look, what is the commandment that he's talking about? This old, new commandment. We see in 2 John verses 5 and 6, John tells us what he's talking about, so that's helpful. 2 John, verse 5, he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, speaking to the church, not as though I are writing to you a new commandment, but the one you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John tells us that this old new commandment that he's talking about here is that we love one another. And we know that it's old because we see it way back in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That old commandment plays out as John says that love, that this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. You see, in Leviticus 19.18, this verse is a summary of a whole list of commands about how we ought to love our neighbor, how we ought to walk with our neighbor. These commands include things such as not stealing from your neighbor, not cheating your neighbor, don't slander, don't hate, don't bully, don't seek vengeance, and do move in a just manner and do care for the poor. You see, we may have thought, perhaps, that God's law is restrictive and punitive. But as we grow through this process of sanctification, we realize that there's no dichotomy between God's love and God's law. His commands are for our collective good as his people. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33 says, You shall walk in, the way of the Lord your, walk in the way of the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. God gives his law, his commands, for our good. And Jesus, in Matthew 22, tells us that all of the law and the prophets are summarized in two things, that we love God with all our heart and soul and mind, and that we love our neighbor as ourself. 
Jesus agrees that all this old is summarized here in love your neighbor as yourself. So if this is an old command, why is John now saying that this is new also? See, this command was previously under the old covenant. And under the old covenant, sin was dealt with by animal sacrifice, this propitiation. And any sort of advocation or mediation or intercession involved the priest over and over and over again offering these sacrifices. They didn't have the perfect advocate, the perfect propitiation, the perfect sin offering in Christ yet. And this old covenant still had an obedience problem because the sacrifice was not perfect. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15, 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Hebrews kind of gets into what's happening with this old and new covenant, why there's a difference. In chapter 8, verses 6 through 11, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says, and this is quoting from Jeremiah, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, they shall teach not they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. For the least of them, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards them, towards for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and will remember their sins no more. The book of Hebrews goes on to say that in this new covenant through the sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we have eternal redemption, that we are being sanctified, and that together we can obey. Together, now, we can do these good works. Paul, in his introduction to the book of Romans, talks of Jesus through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. This is only possible through his work. And he makes obedience possible because of his perfect sacrifice. This new covenant is how this old command is also new. Because now we can obey. Now we can truly love. This is what Jesus meant on the night of his betrayal 
before he went on to become the true atoning sacrifice that sealed this new covenant. When he said in John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. In this new commandment, John tells us in our passage that true light is already shining and darkness is passing away because his people are being sanctified so that they can participate in this kingdom work. So this brings us to our last whoever says statement. And this is our application for this morning. It gets down, narrowing down into what do we do with this? What is the application? Verses 9 through 11. Let me read those again. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How do we know that we know him? How do we know that we abide in him? How do we know that we walk in the light? We walk in the light as he is in the light, by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. This gets a lot of airtime throughout the rest of this book, and we'll spend multiple weeks talking about this, I'm sure, in the the next few months. But John's saying here that if we walk in hate towards a fellow believer, we have not experienced the God who forgives and unites. Now, this is more than just a one-time frustration, but this is a lifestyle, a habitual attitude of hate towards your fellow believers. You are not being sanctified if you continue to walk in darkness. And unlike walking in light, in darkness you cannot see, and there are many things that will trip you up along the way. See, walking in light is not only characterized by the absence of sin, but by the presence of love. And our love, just like our knowledge, has an active component to it. Remember, John is writing to a church that is hurting after a very disruptive split in false teaching. Now, while those who were walking in darkness left, but there is no doubt residual hurt in and among that body. John is saying to them, you have to work out your love even among those brothers where there is hurt. So what do we do? We too in our context have residual hurt. It may be from last month, last year, from a decade ago. There's residual hurt. We also face in our context new hurt as people in this body, in this room, are going to do something, maybe did something this week that frustrates you. And we will have future hurt. So what do we do when that happens? Well, we don't secure ourselves and protect ourselves from this mess by detachment. You see, this can lead to these stumbling blocks that John talks about. 
This idea of self-preservation leads to self-centeredness, which leads to self-love, which can lead to hatred. Part of walking in love with fellow believers is fellowship. That mutual participation in obeying God's commands. Part of which is what we're doing this morning. We're obeying God's commands to gather together, to enjoy Him together, to worship Him together, and to partake in the proclaiming of the Word and the Supper. And when we obey together with Him, when we obey Him, we know Him more through that experience. And we are changed to be more like Him. And when we together are changed to be more like Him, we are compelled to obedience. And we repeat, through this process of sanctification in and among His people. The more we obey, the more we experience, the more we know, the more we are transformed. If you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering if you know God, if you are abiding in Him, check first to see how you are loving your fellow believers. In summary for this morning, you could say, assurance of salvation is evidenced by the process of sanctification. And that process is only possible through the work of Jesus in this new covenant. And that process is evident in the obeying of his commands, not the least of which is that we are called to love one another. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to speak to us. We ask this morning that you might give each and every one of us such a peaceful sense of assurance that we may never doubt that you own us and that we are yours both now and forever. We ask that the promises of your word will guide us through the good and the difficult and that our faith may grow each day as we walk with you. May we treasure your law and internalize your word. And may your truth be at work in us and give us strength and joy. Lord, deliver us from false assurance and mere intellectual head knowledge. And we ask that you would illuminate our walk in the light so that we may clearly see all the stumbling blocks and avoid them. We thank you that we have an advocate in the Son who is with you and a counselor in the Spirit who is within us. Lord, grow our faith and bring glory to your name in and through us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. At this time, we'll uh, move into the time of taking the supper together. Um, if you would, come up to one of these during this song. The elders will be here passing out the elements. And then after that song, we'll take them together as a body. Thank you.